just a little over a year ago. We have a situation with the Capitol where the Capitol is stormed. And the actions of a few, and it, it shouldn't have happened. It was wrong. But it's definitely I, the actions of a few. I mean, in the scope, yes, it might have been thousands. But in the scope of the entire uh, amount of people in America that are politically conservative or Trump supporters or whatever identifying label is going to be put on that group, that's uh, still a small, a small amount of people that have a bigger, per, cause a bigger problem for the, the group as a whole. But I think we can honestly, let, let's be clear about something. What happened a year ago is not tantamount to 9-11, and it is not tantamount to Pearl Harbor in any way, shape, or form. Okay, it, it's not that. But at the same time, it did put, put a blemish on those in a, in a more politically conservative perspective. But what's interesting to me is I was doing some reading on all this this week, and you may have come across some of the same articles that I did or some of the different pop-ups that happened. January 6th was not the first time that the Capitol has been attacked by, by people in America. I mean, July 2nd, 1915, the guy in the, the middle, Eric Munter, set off three sticks of dynamite in the Capitol building. March 1st, 1954, there were four Puerto Rican Americans who fired guns in Congress and actually uh, injured five different congressmen. I mean, we, we know about, you know, July or March 1st, 1971, the Weather Underground, Bill Ayers. We're not going to go down and chase that rabbit hole right now. But, I mean, they, they, set, off, they set off a bomb in, in the Capitol building. It happened again November 7th, 1983. Another bomb is set off uh, by, a, by a group of women trying to uh, deal with, the, uh, go against the military invasions in Lebanon and Grenada and the things that were happening there. So it's not the first time that the Capitol building has been attacked. But when we look at the, the actions of a small number of people, it does have a perspective. It gives people a perspective, and they instantly jump to the whole. Now, I realize that there are numbers of things that we could go down and talk about what happened with January 6th, and this is not a message on January 6th and what happened with the Capitol riots. But when we look at this, what happened as a result of a few people have a bigger perspective on how people view the whole. You know, people look at the actions of these few and think bad of all Trump supporters, or all conservatives, or those in, in, in those political camps. To be fair, conservatives do the same thing. I mean, we, we look and we say, okay, the squad, you know, anybody, obviously, the actions of a the few, they, well, then anybody who's not politically conservative must want to see the complete demise of America. That's, we, to be fair, that's not the case. They just very much have different political leanings than somebody who's conservative. I think it's a natural bent from, from Americans or from humans in, in, in general. The natural human instinct is for us to lump people into a group as a whole, to see the actions, the words, the attitudes of an individual who are part of that group. And we have that, we have that inclination. Now, thinking about that, thinking about that's our natural desire and the natural desire of humans to take and see, okay, this is how a few people act. That's how the whole group must be. Let's remember in this section of Scripture, Peter is giving us that lens to look through in, in chapter 2, verse 12. He's saying, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter reminds us that all that we're doing in our relationships, people are observing, people are watching. And so if people see how maybe some Christians act, how does that impact the whole? If people see how members of Faith Baptist Church act in our community, 
How does that have a reflection upon the whole? We, we know the phrase, no man is an island unto themselves. How believers act has direct impact on how people view believers. Think about that again. How we act as believers has direct impact on how people view believers. So with that in mind, as Peter works through the text, he's moved, moved us through some very specific situations, talking about submission to the government, submission to our employees, submission in the family. Now he's going to speak to a more general Christian population when we get to verse number eight here, where he talks, finally, you all be of one mind. He's looking and saying, there is no exception here. It's not just a couple of you. It's not just talking to husbands and wives. It's not just talking if you have an employer or if you uh, fall under a situation with the government. He's saying, no, all of you, every single one of us here, as we sit here today, there is no exception to the exhortations that Peter is going to give us in these next verses. Now, interestingly, these are all, in verse number eight, these are all adjectives that are given. They're describing words. They're, they're telling us this is what we are to be described as believers. But interestingly, they have the force, most commentators look and say they have the force of an imperative, that we are to be this, be that. And it almost, this passage almost has this Sermon on the Mount feel where it's very short, very quick, be this, be this, and Peter's going to talk about you receive blessings and to be a blessing, and those who do evil and those who come against you and revile you and suffer. There's, there's almost some of the same similar themes that Jesus touches on in the first parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we look at this section here, what are Peter's beatitudes? That's how Jesus started off in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Peter gives us some attitudes that we ought to have. This is what we ought to be like. Now, as believers, we operate in two spheres very consistently. We have our sphere that's here, our church, our believers, our family, and then we have everything outside, the world, our employers, everything that goes on outside of the family of God. And so as we look at this passage, Peter's going to address some of our interactions, our interpersonal relationships as believers. But then he's also going to look and say, what about your relationship with unbelievers? What should, what should our attitudes be? What should we be like? So verse 8 talks about in the family of God. What should our attitudes be like? Peter's exhortations here are going to talk about the church body, and he's going to say, if we work on these, we're going to have a smoother relationship here. We're going to have a better family, a stronger unit a stronger base that we, that we have here. However, we know that churches are prone to the struggles of division, of dissension, of having uh, disagreements. These attitudes and attributes cannot be fueled by our individual selfish interests. What Peter's going to talk about in verse 8, it can't be because this is what I want. It's about body. It's about us as a body. We have to thrive as a church by strengthening and nurturing ourselves and working on these attributes. So what are we supposed to be doing? What, what should our hearts be like? How do we know here that Peter's talking to the church, first of all, in verse 8? Look, look at what he says. We know this letter is written to believers, but he uses the phrase here, one another. Having compassion, one of another. So he's writing to the church, to believers. Now he's going to say, having this conversation, having compassion, 
one of another. He also then uses the love as brethren. He doesn't, we're not told as believers to love the non-believers as brethren. This is a, this is a familial term. This is our body. This is us as a church, as a family. We are supposed to be working on these attributes in verse number eight among each other. So as we look at that, what's the first one? He says, be harmonious. In other words, you be of all of one mind. It's to have a like-minded attitude, to be working toward the same goals, to have the same perspectives theologically, to have the same doctrine, to have the same direction. Now, it's not this idea of becoming a clone. I think it's important for us to understand harmony and unity. It's not the idea of we just all become clones who are identical, who dress the exact same way, who do the exact same thing. There is a, there is a dynamic. Conformity is really an operative principle inside of cults. You have to just do this, and if you do this and deviate from all of this, it's not good. In Christianity, we have harmony. Now, there's a difference here. There are fundamentals of the faith. We're not going to deny those things. We're not going to deny the gospel. We're not going to deny the deity of Christ, the second coming of Christ. We're not going to deny the inspiration of the scriptures. We're not going to deny that Jesus was virgin born, that he came to this world, that he died a vicarious atonement. He took our place. We're not going to deny that. We, those are similar. Those are fundamentals of our faith that we, we don't equivocate on. We don't, we don't waffle on those things. We, we conform to those truths of the gospel. But truthfully, is there difference among us? Do we have different stations in life, so to speak? Do we have different gifts, different ministry abilities? Do we have different abilities uh, with what we're able to do physically? Yes. We have different opinions. I mean, can we, can we be in harmony on whether or not we should have canceled the service last, tonight or this morning? Or can we not? I mean, we have opinions on even some of the most trivial things. We get frustrated. We don't get, and even some other things. We, we can have that, but we can have differing opinions, and yet we can still live harmoniously with each other. To still be able to say, okay, we don't agree on some of these things, but we can still be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We, we have to be able to follow the leadership of Jesus Christ, his word, his spirit. Harmony is often disrupted, though, because of our pride, because of our lack of humility. To say, this is what I want, and my way is obviously the only right way. And because my way is the right way, if you don't do it my way, you're wrong. And you must be just a sinful person who just can't ever get right with God because I'm right and you're always wrong. That's not the idea. We're looking and saying, what, what is Peter getting at? When he says, be harmonious. Think about it this way. If I had, and I won't, I won't do it, but if I had Sharon come up to the piano and I said, we're going to sing Jesus Loves Me. And she just decided to push one note all the time. Jesus loves me, this I know for... We're doing the exact same thing all together. We're unified, right? We're singing the exact same note. That's not harmony. It becomes much more beautiful when four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, notes are being played all at once with a perspective and agenda that it's moving toward a goal. As a body, that's what we are. We have different ministry abilities. That's why we all need to be involved because our ministry abilities add to the body. We may have some differing opinions, but we work together. That's harmonious. That is the harmony that we are to have. We have a like-minded goal. 
that though we may have some differences in some things, we work toward magnifying our great God, our maker, by mimicking our master. We work toward that together as a body, even though there might be some slight differences in things. Harmony and unity are important, but they're not to be preserved by sacrificing that which unites Christians, as I've talked about already, Christ and the gospel. We can't equivocate and and switch that around. So we, we focus on those things. Now, how should believers be characterized? Peter goes on, he says, be harmonious. Then he says, be sympathetic or be compassionate. He's saying, having compassion one of another. Being tender-hearted is the idea. To have concern or have the same feeling, it literally means to suffer with. So as believers are going through, as our body is battling through difficulties, whether it's medical, whether it's emotional, whether it's a spiritual struggle or a physical struggle, that we suffer with one another. That we look and we say, okay, I see their struggles, I read about that, and I suffer with them. I struggle, I go through that. I have a compassion, a tenderheartedness toward their plight. It's an understanding their needs, their joys, their sorrows, and their sufferings. But sympathy, though it is necessary, it is not sufficient. And Peter's not going to let us stop there. He goes, yes, you have compassion, but he says, demonstrate love toward one another. Have you ever, you ever um, anybody ever had the opportunity to drive in a third world country? Maybe Mexico, well, Mexico City is not third world country, but like in a place like Mexico City, some of you have. Mexico City, driving there and driving in Bangkok were two of the scariest moments of my life. There's six lanes of traffic and there's probably, Dan, do you remember? You liked it, Yeah driving on the other side of the road with eight cars in six lanes. What was amazing to me, and maybe that's why I was scared, because you were driving. Yeah. What amazed me is the drivers were aware. A bicyclist could come into the road, and this person would swerve, and everybody would swerve. Everybody, there was just this constant movement back and forth. Everybody was aware of everything that was happening all around them. And for us as believers, we need to be moving with each other. When we know that someone in our body is suffering, someone is going through a difficulty, we're moving, we're helping, we're, we're coming alongside of. We need to be sensitive toward what is going around us, aware of other believers' situations, to, to look not just at the emails, but maybe look across the pew and say, how, how are you doing? You learn that someone is going through a hard time really committing to praying that week for that individual. So Peter says, it's not just enough though. He says, I want you then to be loving. I want you to love as the brethren. He says, this is a familial love. It means to love those who are not blood like they are blood. Now I know for some of you, you're like, well, (laughs) you don't want me to love anybody here like I love my family because I don't love my family. You get the idea of what Peter's driving at that general normal love that you have for your kids, your siblings, your parents, and the, the everyday normal situation. That's how we're supposed to love one another. It is that, that deep Philadelphia-type love, that, that brotherly love, that camaraderie that we have. And it's central to the family of God. Peter puts it right at the middle. It's interesting, the first, the first one, 
uh, be all of one mind. And the last one where he's going to talk about be courteous, it really talks about how we think. The middle one, the two, the having compassion and being pitiful, it talks about how we feel. The middle one that he puts here, that, that right in the middle, love the brethren, it's about what we're doing. The interaction that we're having, he's saying this is central to our body. That we are loving each other as a body. I've been watching this series on Netflix called uh, World War II in Color, The Road to Victory. And I've really enjoyed the, the series talking about the battles. This one's about all the turning points that occur in the, in the, the battle of World War II. I was recently watched the one this week on the Battle of Sicily. And it's just after the, the Allies have conquered North, North Africa, and now they want to start pushing into the European continent. And Churchill convinces America to join with them and to, to go into Italy. And so they're going to first attack Sicily. And as they, they go into Sicily, there is, there is a definite difference in how the Allies are met. The Brits... When they go in, they end up battling the Germans, and the Germans are really, really going at them, and it's a really hard battle. The, the American forces, when they went in, they initially met some, some resistance, but as they got into the island of Sicily, they were greeted with hugs. They were greeted with rides, you know, giving other people rides on motorbikes, and it, it, there was some resistance, but the resistance was far less to, to what the Brits faced. And, and they were talking about why that was. They said one of the reasons was there were a number of American soldiers who were Sicilian, so it was like going, into, going back home. They said another reason that, that occurred was uh, because as the, the American forces were realizing this, they got involved. They didn't know how they were going to do it, so they went to a mobster in, who was in prison at this point called Lucky Luciano, and they talked to him. He's Sicilian. He got in contact with a bunch of his Sicilian mobster friends because they didn't like how the Germans were, were treating the Sicilians and it was ruining their business is what, you know, it was keeping the mob down. And he talked about, he says, hey, I want you to treat the Americans a little bit more like brothers, like family. And so there was, the, there was a much easier push in Sicily for the Americans because the Sicilians treated these people who were not blood like they were blood, like they were family. You know, they were like, hey, you know, come on in. Let, let Nona cook you some Italian. It wasn't that. But it was, it was that aspect where he got them to treat them like family. And that's what we're to be doing. We are to encourage each other. We're, we're not related. I'm related to, you know, maybe six people in here by blood or by marriage, actually. They probably won't want to claim me by blood. Um, but beyond that... I'm supposed to treat all of you as if you are family. And you're supposed to treat each other as if we are family because we are the family of God. So we demonstrate love. And love must be worked on. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I'm sort of an unlovable guy. I know you might not think so. But by nature, I'm not the most lovely person. It takes work. You can ask Sharon later to love me. And you're the same. Because we are proud, we are not humble by nature, we want our ways, we want our agendas, and we can be very unlovable. And yet we need to work at being lovely, but also loving one another. Peter goes on, he says, not only be loving, but he says, be compassionate. Now, in the King James we have here, be pitiful, okay? 
definitely the idea in our more modern context is the idea of compassion. That it's not, don't, don't be pitiful. Don't be, we, we read that and we're like, I don't understand. But it's to have pity. To, to look, to have the deep feelings that arise when you see somebody suffering, when you see their battles, and then you go and do something. It's the idea, the, the word comes from the deep emotions of our intestines. It's the vital organs. It's where the seat of the emotions is. And when I see the battles, when I see the suffering, remember the context. We'll talk about it here in a second. These believers are going through hard times. They are facing oppression. They are facing sufferings. And these believers are to have this deep compassion for them. Sympathy earlier refers to our commitment to know how you're doing, what you're going through. Compassion here refers to the response to the state of the other people. What am I going to do about it? Oh, okay, great, I read an email and I never, never pray about it. Oh, I see that they're battling through, oh, I, don't, I don't have time to go help them. What does it prompt us to do? The word itself has a practical bent. It implies action to your, re, to, to your reaction. That you're going to do something. You're like, oh wow, that's really bad. I'm sorry they're going through that. Let me do something about it. Love does. It doesn't just sit back, but love puts into action. It is acting appropriately to assist our fellow Christians who are in need. So as Peter is looking at this passage, at the body of believers, he's saying you're going to see them going through hard times. You're going to see the difficulties. Do something about it. Show love in action. Treat them as a family member. Do something. Have compassion upon them. Now, what if you find yourself as the one who's going to receive this compassion? What if you're the one giving the compassion? Max Akers, who's a commentator, wrote a number of good questions and thoughts right around these two questions. He says, have you ever thought about someone sees that you're going through something and they want to help? What's your response? Do you find it difficult to receive help because of your pride? I don't don't need your help. Just leave me. No, no, we're, we're all good. Do you recoil at the assistance of another? Here, let me help you with that. No, I'm fine. You, you just think you're, you know, better than... Do we recoil? Because we, we don't like to admit we may need help. Do we act superior, defiant, or disillusioned? Do you seek to make sure, maybe if you're the one giving it, that everyone knows that you're helping people? Do you simply do it to exalt yourself in the eyes of others? And as he asks those questions, he says, think about that. You could be on either end of this spectrum, The one not wanting to receive help because of your pride, because you recoil that you don't need anybody's help, or maybe you're the one who's on the other end and saying, well, I want to make sure everybody knows what I do for everybody. Or maybe you find yourself somewhere in between trying to do it for the right reasons. But Peter looks and he gives that fifth adjective. What does he say? He looks and he's going to say, be courteous. Or the word, the idea here is be humble. When somebody helps, be gracious about it, courteous, as they help you, he says to, to be pitiful or be, and then be courteous. It's to be self-effacing, the word is, to be humble, to consider others more important than you. The quality of humility is the recognition at times of our weakness and limitations. That I can't do it all and I need your help. That's humbling at times. For me to have to look and say, I can't do it, can you help? I like to admit, I like to do everything and I like to be able to do it all. 
And I don't think I'm the only one. So we have to at times admit that we are weak, that we have limitations. The quality of humility also recognizes that our strength comes from God. The fact that I can stand up here is not some great feat of art. It's the fact that God has helped, that God enables. For some of you doing different ministries, it's that God enables you and allows you to do it. The quality of humility is essential for true Christian unity. We must be humble to receive help to give help for all the right reasons of esteeming others better than ourselves. Having that mind of Christ, which Pastor preached about out of Philippians 2, who humbled himself, that's, that's to be our heart attitude toward one another. That is what we are to be, to show humility toward. Uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a, another commentator, wrote it this way. Humility is an awareness of strengths and gifts as provided by God and a grateful attitude for them. It is also an awareness of areas of weakness and need and a desire to grow in these areas and the willingness to receive assistance with those needs. Humility desires to put the interests of other people ahead of our self-interest. If we work on that as a body, seeing the needs of each other, seeing the suffering, seeing the battle, seeing the joy, seeing the sorrows, having the compassion to do something, to, to, to enact brotherly love one toward another and to humbly go about it. Peter says that allows for better relationships one of another. And remember, who, is ex- who has the exceptions in this? None of us. We are all to have these heart attitudes. This is what we are to be as a body of believers. Now, Peter recognizes that this is one sphere of our life, the, 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 the group here, the church, the body. But remember the current situation of these believers. They're exiles. They're facing suffering. They're facing persecutions. They're facing uh, a government that is opposed to, to their beliefs. They're facing uh, persecution from their employers. They're facing people who are pushing against them. And Peter is telling them that you are going through all of these different things and you are supposed to work through submitting to your government, to your employers, to your unsafe spouses, all these difficult situations. And he says, you're, you're out there. You're battling outside this sphere. You're living life outside of the group of believers. How are, what should our attitudes be? What should we be doing? How should we be living? So Peter continues, he says, what are our attitudes to be outside of the family of God? I believe we should be taking those same, same truths and principles into every aspect of our life, but he's gonna talk about outside the family of God. Now, why do we say outside the family of God once we get to verse number nine? Peter, in his text, consistently speaks of evil, abusive speech, and suffering coming from unbelievers. Now, is it true that uh, abusive speech, evil actions, can come from within the body? Do we see evidences of that even in Scripture? We do. We see division. We see disagreements. That, That can happen. But in Peter's mind, that should not be the norm That should not be the typical dynamic here in this community or in any biblical community. We should not be seeing the evils, the railing, the the cursing toward one another. And I, I think that as Peter has that perspective, but then also in verse 12, 
where he talks about the face of the Lord is against them that do this type of evil. When we talk about, he's talking to believers, he's not going to look and say the wrath of God, the face of God being against the, those. He's not looking in this perspective and saying the church body. He's looking at those who are totally against God, that they will face that eminent final wrath as the face of God is against them. So it seems to be that verses 9 through, through 12 here are talking more outside the community. How, how do we act then? So Peter is going to teach us more of our attitudes, what they ought to be, but he, he expounds a little bit. He doesn't just give us a positive. He now gives us a positive and a negative. He says, be this and not this. So as we go through, he says, be a blessing. Be a blessing to others. Don't be vengeful. Look at verse number nine. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. He says, when you're facing the evils, when you're facing the words that are coming against you in life, he says, don't return that. This is a theme throughout the New Testament, isn't it? To, to not go right back, to leave the vengeance to the Lord, even throughout the, throughout the scriptures. We don't repay wrong with wrong. We don't pay abuse with abuse. We don't play, repay violent words with violent words. That is not what we as believers are to be doing or how we are to be acting in this world. The natural inclination, though, and I would say even of us as Christians at times, well, at least this Christian, is revenge, is to go right back. You want to strike hard? I can strike back hard. You want to come at me with words? I can come with you with words too. You want to tr- Let's go toe-to-toe. That's my natural human response. And yet he says, don't render evil for evil. Railing for railing. You ever, you ever read the book by Alexander Dumas or see the movie Count of Monte Cristo? I remember when we were in seminary, we, we went and saw uh, this movie with, with a number of other, a couple other seminarians as we were doing this. And I remember we got done with this movie and we're standing in front of the, that's like the billboard marquee on the left-hand side. And we're standing there, and I was like, this, the, I'd never read The Count of Monte Cristo. I know that's probably like really bad in my educational process, but I had never read it. So this is the first time I'm like, this just doesn't sit comfortably with me. This whole thing is about revenge. And Sharon and I were talking, and this, there's this one other, one other lady who was there from Pastor's Wife, uh, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not about revenge at all. It was really good to see. And she's standing right in front of this, prepare for adventure, count on revenge. It's like the other side said, it's all about revenge. And I'm like, it's right there. Or can you not? And it was just this, this grating thing. But there's this natural inclination where, wow, this is, this is really good. But revenge is not to be the path for Christians to follow. It's not to, how can I get back at we see this guy as a hero in the book because he, he made everything right, all through revenge. But that's not to be our path. It's not to be to get back at the guy who did us wrong, who did us dirty, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it a little bit more. What's gonna happen? If I get back at him, then what happens? He's gonna wanna do what? Get back at me. We use this at teen camp all the time as an illustration where we talk, don't do pranks in the, in the cabins because if you do it to them, then they're going to want to do it back to you. And by the end of the week, every, and all we're doing, all we're seeing is people going at each other because that's our natural inclination to get revenge. And, and Peter's saying, that's not to be. Even in the midst of suffering, 
even in the midst of hardship, it is not to attack back. He does not say simply to avoid not, not striking back, not to, to revenge, but he asks us as believers, actually commands us as believers to do more. He doesn't just say, don't strike back, but he says, you be a blessing to those who are hurtful, to those who come at you with words. Can't stand that school board. Well, go be a blessing to the school board. You can't stand the way that the, you know, the local government official is treating your government. Go be a blessing to them. You can't stand the way the employer is, is always hard on you. Be a blessing to them. Find out what's going on in there. Try and do something. He says, go. Maybe it's going to be forgiving those who, whose words are abusive, speaking well to those who do evil against you, to intercede for your adversaries. Maybe it's going to be being gracious to those who uh, come against you, offering words of kindness instead of derision and degradation, offering the hope of salvation to somebody who has none, to seek the highest good of those who want vengeance against you or that you want to take vengeance against. This is Peter calling us to a higher standard than most people in this country ever want to live by. And yet he's going to lead us eventually down to verses 15 and 16 where we won't spend time, but you can peek ahead. Where when we are doing good to those who do evil against us, it brings about the opportunities for us to share of the hope that is within us to begin to give an answer as to what is different about you. Why, would you, why, why wouldn't you come back and why would you bless me? Instead, I, I, I would have yelled at you. But treating ourselves to being different. Now, why would we do this? It's so countercultural. It's so antithetical to who we are as people because he gives us the motive. Verse number nine or 10. No, it's verse nine. Knowing that you also are called that you should inherit a blessing. We are called, it's, it's pointing back to what he just said, we are called to be a blessing. This is clearly what God expects from his children. It's not optional. We are to be a blessing to other people. Our conduct of blessings should bring about blessings in our lives, he says. That's the second motive there. He says that those who are being a blessing, that you will inherit a blessing. What the spiritual blessing is, whether it's right now, whether it's eternal blessing, Peter's not completely clear. But he says that those who are a blessing to others will inherit a blessing, something that is to come. Maybe it's going to be blessings and, and, and peace here, working with people. But he says that's two good motives because God expects it because that's what we're called to be doing. And he says those who bless receive a blessing. Now, some argue that this is just the blessing of salvation. However, Peter's already talking to believers, this idea about the blessing in our life. It seems that God's blessing is both a result of his call as well as the fact that believers are blessing others. God's call to us is both the basis of our ability to bless and to be a blessing. The fact that God has called us to be a blessing enables us to bless others. And when we bless others... God is saying, I'll be a blessing to you. And there will be a blessing. But that's not natural. Natural is vindictive, vengeful attitudes, words, revilings. 
And he quotes from the, in the next section here, in verses 10, 11, 12. He quotes from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a psalm that focuses on God's deliverance. You can go back and read Psalm 34. The deliverance of those who are afflicted. And it reminds us that the Lord rescues those who are suffering, who are going through the hardships, and that the Lord will judge the wicked, and that the righteous, they display their trust in God by renouncing evil and pursuing God. And that's the the whole theme of Psalm 34, is that God will vindicate the righteous. The righteous don't have to take care, God will take care of it. He will judge the wicked. We are to pursue godliness. We are to pursue right words and right actions, and we leave the judgment upon the wicked to God, not to us. And so Peter out of, picks out of Psalm 34, and in those themes, he's going to quote a few verses here. Now, it makes sense to me that Peter would use this, because think about the, the, the individuals that Peter's writing to. They're constantly facing the suffering at the hands of wicked people. They're in a world that is anti-God, just like us. They're in a situation where they are exiled. And Peter says, you just keep doing right. You go beyond just doing right. Just live a holy, righteous life. Leave this to God. And what is, he gives us another motive to, to living this way. He says in verse number 10, and there's something more enjoyable. He says, for he that will love life and see good days. Then he's going to talk about, but he talks about a more enjoyable, a longer life is the typical aspect of these attitudes and these attributes. It makes sense. Think about it this way. If you can learn to control your tongue, to live righteously, to be honest with people, to encourage and bless people, to have compassion upon people, to be humble, you're typically, proverbially speaking, going to find yourself in better situations with people than if you're always trying to get back at them. If you're always trying to get your way, if you're trying to manipulate things to always be for you, if you're constantly tearing down other people, it causes enemies, it causes fightings. And Peter's looking and saying, hey, if we can learn to live this way with people, you don't have to watch your back. There's, there's, there's benefits and blessings to this in our lives living these ways. So he looks and he says, be controlled then. Another dynamic, be controlled with your speech, not cruel and deceitful. Verse, verse 10, we, we talked about uh, the first part, but he says, for this person who will love life and see good days, let this person, him, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. We know he's talking about speech. He's talking about the tongue. He's talking about speaking. He's talking about the lips. He's talking about guile, which is the idea of words being talked. What does he say? He says, we as believers in this world need to restrain. Restrain our speech. That goes in our conversations around the water cooler. That goes to our social media posts and rants. That goes to our standing up in public to speak to other people. We need to be wise with our words. It highlights this. Our natural bent is toward cruel and dishonest speech. We have to work on, Peter's like, you need to, to be spiritual, to be blessed, to be doing this. You need to work on, I need to work on not being cruel and deceitful in my speech. 
The, word, the words evil and guile that he talks about here, evil has the idea of being foul, morally rotten. And the idea with words here specifically when it talks about evil words or that idea are words that are seeking to injure, to be grievous, to destroy, to I am going to tear you down. I'm going to make you look stupid in front of everybody. I'm going to prove my point even if it makes you look like the worst person in the, in the job. I'm going, to, I'm going to be injurious with my words. Guile has the idea of deceit, twisting the words, designed to destroy, to tear down. It's the going to the boss and not, not saying they did this, but placing it in their mind that, you know, that person over there may have, and you're twisting words to injure, to tear down to take somebody out, so to speak. It's the crafting of words, guileless, to sway one's opinion. It's interesting to me that we often find the ability to craft and spin words as such a great virtue in our society. But Peter simply tells us to be honest. I was joking this week with pastor. I said, I don't know how I could never be the press secretary. I don't know how she does it. The, it's constantly that. I couldn't do it. I could not do that job for anybody because you're constantly having to spin things to make somebody, to get you to think that way, not to be thinking about the truth. And Peter is telling us, as believers, in this world, the world needs the refreshment of honest, straightforward, kind, compassionate, humble speech. And we ought to be the lighthouse of that. Evil and insulting words may bring the feeling of temporary victory, but really what they do is they inflict pain. They destroy relationships. We need to be wise with our words. We also need to be righteous in our lifestyle, not seeking evil. Verse 11, let him eschew evil and do good. Very simply, we don't even have to park on this for a long time. The traditional call of believers is to live a holy life, to live righteously, to eschew, to hate the evil we are called to actively avoid this evil. Now, in this passage, everything is dealing with interpersonal relationships, working with one another, working with even people outside. So we must not be seeking to do evil things toward or with others. We are to be a beacon of general godliness and goodliness toward other people. And as we work toward that, it builds relationships with the goal of, remember chapter 2, verse 12, that when they see your good works, these are some of those good works, the speeches, the, the words, the lifting up, the not tearing down. These are the good works that people see that are not normative in our society. And when they see that, they now begin to question, asking you of the hope that's within you. And now with meekness, and reverence, we can answer that. That we can give to them the hope of Jesus Christ. That they may one day be able to glorify God in the day of visitation. But if we cannot humble ourselves to be thinking of others, if we cannot be looking and saying, I'm going to be a blessing rather than vengeful. I'm not going to craft my words and, and twist them, but I'm just going to be honest and truthful. If I'm not going to seek to be righteous, what we do as a small group has impact upon the whole, the large. It's our testimony as a body, as believers. He goes on, verse 11, he says, be peaceful 
in your relationships, but not passive. Verse 11 talks about peace. It's that idea, again, he comes back to this idea of harmonious living. He says, let him eschew evil, do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Peace is only achievable in relationships if we are not insulting and reviling others. If we can't get over the first two parts of this, of controlling our speech against other people, if we can't get over the fact of trying to do evil and harm to them rather than doing good, the peaceful relationships that will help us to build those genuine relationships to share the gospel will continue to crumble. And so Peter looks and says, be peaceful, but don't be passive. Look what he says. He says, you seek peace, seek the harmony, even, even among those who are not believers, that we live peaceably with all men. It doesn't mean we equivocate on the gospel. We've already been through that. But we look and we say we want to seek to be peaceful. And he says to ensue it. It's a hunting term. It's the idea of to doggedly pursue after, to get on the trail, and I'm not going to let this go. I'm going, to, I'm going to seek peace with these individuals, whether it's coming back to forgiveness, whether it's seeking to just be more gracious and just do something kind and respectful for them, to, to encourage them. I'm going to seek peace among them. To achieve harmony in relationships, we have to be seeking it. It's to pursue with intensity, to show uh, the harmony. Part of our goal and calling as Christians is to seek to live peacefully in our relationships. That's part of our goal. Peter doesn't, again, doesn't say, hey, this is optional. He says, this is what we ought to be. We ought to be peace seekers. We ought to be people who are looking to build and keep relationships intact, to restore relationships among ourselves and among others. And as Peter wraps up, he knows that everything we're battling, nothing in life is hidden from God. And that should govern our behavior. He uses this last verse as this this motive. Verse 12, still coming from Psalm 34 again. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. He highlights that as believers, God blesses and God cares for the righteous. He answers their prayers. He looks and he says, the, the, when he talks about the eyes of the Lord are over, he sees, he knows the struggles, he knows the battles. Maybe one of the spiritual blessings from earlier for those who are doing right is that God is seeing and God is answering the prayers that God's face and ears are bent toward those who are living this way. And so he looks and he says, okay, what's my motivation? How am I doing? It's like the, it's loading up. I need to do this. I need to do this. Why do I need to, why do I need to live this way? Why do I need to choose these attitudes? Because God blesses the righteous. And he blesses us by caring for us, by answering our prayers. And God ultimately then, the other reason because God will take care of the righteous and he will vindicate us. In other words, he deals with the wicked. That's at the end of verse 12 there. That the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Our natural inclination, you're going through, Peter's Peter's people are going through the suffering. 
They want to maybe fight back. They want to push against. And Peter's saying, no, live peaceably. Don't, don't fight reviling for reviling. Don't go word for word. You be a blessing. He says, you let God take care of the vindication. You let God make things right. You just humbly live before others and within the body. Even when the world seems set against us, even when everything seems to be crumbling down around us and there's no godliness in this world, it seems. Peter says, you have your body. We need to live together, building each other up because we're each other's hospital. We're each other's room that comes together and we help when we're hurting to build us up to be able to go back out. We're the triage center. And then we come back in and we build each other up because we're going through the hearts and the sufferings. And we encourage and we come together and we show love and we be humble with one another so that we're strengthened so that as we go out into the world and we have to live righteously and not vengefully. That we have to seek peace even in moments where it just seems that everybody's attacking. And we come back and we build each other up and we strengthen each other. It's this, it's this ebb and flow. And Peter says we need to be doing these things together for one another strengthening each other, and we leave the vindication to God. We take these attitudes, and we begin to implement them. There's a, there's a number of them, and I would encourage you for this week, choose one, maybe two, because you're going to look and say, wow, there's like nine of them here. Which one do I work on? Choose just one or two this week and say, okay, let's this week work on being a blessing Choose somebody to be a blessing to. Maybe somebody that's been striking against you. Be a blessing. Be a blessing and pursue peace with all in the relationships of your life.